0: Welcome to StudentoftheBible.com. I'm your host, Renee, and I'm a Bible student. I'm glad you are too. Thank you so much for joining. Pray for discernment and ask God to show you how you can share this information with others and be a blessing. Welcome to my second podcast in my series, John the Baptist. Jesus himself said these words of John, Truly I tell you, among those born of women there is not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. That was Matthew chapter 11 verse 11. Last week we heard the story of John's miraculous birth that started with an unexpected announcement by an angel. It was the angel Gabriel who came to John's elderly father, Zechariah, while he was lighting the incense in the temple sanctuary. And the angel announced that Zechariah and his barren, elderly wife, Elizabeth, would bear a son. We also learned that because of Zechariah's unbelief, which, gosh, it's kind of understandable given the circumstances, he's unable to speak until John is 8 days old. Certainly both Elizabeth and Zachariah would be able to attest to the fact that nothing is impossible for God. Nothing will stand in the way of God's plan and purpose. And you know, throughout biblical history, we will see God work miracles through barren women. Sarah and Abraham Isaac and Rebecca, Jacob and Rachel, Hannah and her husband, Manoah and his wife. Now, you might not be familiar with them. They become Samson's parents. Remember in the Bible, Samson and Delilah? And of course, we have Elizabeth and Zechariah. During today's podcast, let's take a look at John's remarkable yet humble life. We don't know a lot about John's childhood, except the Angel Gabriel predicted John is going to bring his parents much joy and he will refrain from wine or fermented drink. So chances are John the Baptist did not participate in any wild teenage parties. Luke, the Gospel writer, has this to say about the young John in Luke chapter 1, verse 80 in the New Testament. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he lived in the desert until he appeared publicly to Israel. The Bible tells us that Zechariah and Elizabeth recognized the clear calling of the Lord on their son. And, you know, as parents, we tend to look at our babies and we wonder and dream, gosh, I wonder what they're going to be when they grow up. Well, Zechariah and Elizabeth they embraced this special purpose that God had for their son. And as we learned in the last podcast, traditionally a firstborn son would be named after the father or at least receive a family name. But both parents honored the words given to them by the angel Gabriel that this child should be named John. Zechariah we know had been silenced unable to speak until at the circumcision celebration he asks for a tablet and he writes down his name is John and then the bible says immediately Zechariah's mouth is opened and he begins praising God and then he has this prophecy over his son he looks it down and says, And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. The passage then goes on to say that John grew and became strong in spirit, and he lived in the desert until he appeared publicly to Israel. Okay. This idea of living in the desert might seem a strange place for a young man to live. Those of us that live in Arizona, we may agree. But we learn in the Bible that prophets were known to use the isolation of the desert to grow spiritually and to allow them to really focus their message on God. And honestly, it makes sense because by living apart from the culture and preparing for his ministry, John was able to speak with great passion and clarity to the people. John remained separate from the economic and the political influence so he could aim his message at them. And Likewise, he was able to remain separate from the hypocritical religious leaders of the day because his message is going to be vastly different from theirs and his whole humble way of life will prove it. So the Bible says John lived in the desert, he took what we call the Nazarite vows, which means no alcohol, and lived his days with specific purpose. John's unique appearance is described in Mark's Gospel, and physical descriptions are actually uncommon in the Gospels unless they reveal a specific quality about the person's character. Therefore, the Gospel writer Mark's mention of John the Baptist's clothes held special significance to Mark's audience because John is described as wearing camel hair with a leather belt around his waist. And this description is very similar to that of the Old Testament prophet Elijah. You'll read about this in 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 8 in the Old Testament. They're describing Elijah, and they say he had a garment of hair and a leather belt around his waist. Hmm, we'll talk later about this connection to Elijah. The Bible tells us that John's clothing and his diet were simple he wasn't loaded down with cares and desires of this world and though his life may seem extreme and most of us may not easily relate to a diet of locusts and wild honey the heart of it is this he chose obedience to god's call he said yes to god's mission even though it probably wasn't easy he did have free will remember He could have chosen his own way, but he didn't allow his own desires or even other people's opinions to interfere with what he knew he was there to do. John lived a life focused with determination and purpose. He knew and understood God's call, and he pursued it with his whole heart and throughout his whole life. And here's a Bible truth. God gives us the power to keep our heart and our minds set on him, even in our desert days. Now, the gospel writer Luke does a good job of relaying to his mostly Greek audience the political climate that was occurring while these events unfolded. And the political climate is important for us so that We can better understand, and Luke's audience at the time could better understand, just what was the world like for John the Baptist and for Jesus? We have Palestine, Israel. They're under the rule of the Roman Empire. And the emperor at the time is Caesar Augustus. Now, Roman emperors, they were considered to be gods. So just imagine how they stand in stark contrast to the humble life of someone like John the Baptist or Jesus. Luke tells us in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, he explains who was in charge when John starts his ministry. And John probably started his ministry at around the age of 30. So starting at verse 30. 1 chapter 3 it says in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar now the full name could be Tiberius Julius Caesar Augustus or Caesar Augustus it's all the same person this is the emperor he continues when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea Herod tetrarch of Galilee his brother Philip tetrarch of Arturia and Treconitis and Lysanias is Tetrarch of Abilene, which is the area near Damascus. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Now, one of the great things about Luke's gospel is his attention to detail. We can determine the approximate time that John starts his ministry based on these two sentences. And we believe anywhere between like 26 and 28, 29 AD, right around in there. Luke also gives us quite a bit of information in just these two sentences about the religious and the political climate at the time. He tells us Tiberius was the Roman emperor. Now, as I said, Tiberius is actually known by many names, yeah, not to make it more confusing, but it's he's the same guy as Caesar Augustus or Tiberius Julius Caesar Augustus. They're, they're all the same person. Pontius Pilate was the Roman governor responsible for Judea. Now, that's the area of Bethlehem and Jerusalem, and Pontius Pilate, you know that name because of the role he will play in Jesus' death. Then Luke tells us we have Herod Antipas and Philip. Well, they're related. They're half-brothers, and they're also the sons of Herod the Great, who you may know from my temple talks I like to affectionately call Herod the Horrible. You'll learn more about... Herod Antipas and his brother Philip in my next podcast, so just keep that in the back of your head. So what has happened is that Herod the Great has died, and Herod the Great was ruler when Jesus and John the Baptist were born, but here we are now, maybe about 30 years later. So since his death, his kingdom has been divided among his three sons. That's why when I was just reading that phrase, it was talking about tetrarchs. Uh, That meant that his land was divided into three different pieces. And what's kind of interesting is that his sons actually all had the first name Herod. Think George Foreman, who named all his sons George. Herod the Great did the same thing. But in the Bible, they refer to him as Herod Antipas, Philip, And then the other son who had land was Archelaus. But you didn't hear the name Archelaus in what I just read because Archelaus was such a terrible ruler that he was basically fired from his job as territory ruler and he isn't even mentioned And so at this point, there's another guy named Licinius and he takes over. We learn all of this from Luke in those two sentences, but there's more. So we have Herod Antipas, we have Philip, we have Pontius Pilate, and this new guy, Licinius. They all have equal powers in governing their separate territories, and they report to Rome. And their basic responsibility is keep the peace. Keeping the peace is a very big deal. Anyone disturbing the peace instantly becomes a threat. Okay, what else did we learn from those two sentences? It's that there's a second high priest. Did you catch that when I read it? Now, under Jewish law, since the time of Moses, there's only supposed to be one high priest. He's from the family of Aaron, the line of Levi, and he would hold this important position for life. Remember, one of the special duties of the high priest is to pray for forgiveness for the people of Israel once a year on Yom Kippur in the Holy of Holies. But here we are learning from Luke that sadly the religious system has been corrupted and the Roman government is appointing its own religious leaders to maintain control over the Jews. Annas the true high priest, has been replaced by Annas' son-in-law, Caiaphas, who has been appointed to this position by the Romans. Therefore, Caiaphas, Pilate, and Herod are the most powerful leaders in Palestine. Can you see where this is going? Rome has appointed a high priest for the Jews. This is the political climate that John the Baptist and Jesus find themselves in. and This is important to know because these three powerful men, Caiaphas, Pilate, and Herod Antipas, they're about to be upstaged by a prophet and living in the desert. Isn't it just like God to turn the world upside down with the least expected person? We learn from the gospel writers that John the Baptist did not live for the opinion of others, but lived with compassion to see others brought to repentance toward Christ. The gospel writers tell us that although many people followed John and came to hear him preach, he doesn't let this go to his head. He doesn't become proud and self-focused. You might be wondering, well, just how large of a following did John have? The Bible tells us that John's ministry reached into neighboring lands, including Alexandria, Egypt, because we learn in the book of Acts that there's this guy named Apollos, who is from Alexandria, Egypt, and he is a follower of John the Baptist. Similarly, we learn in Paul's letters that when he arrives in Ephesus, Turkey, he encounters about a dozen disciples of John the Baptist. So, you know, it appears that John the Baptist's movement may have had more influence than you can sort of initially tell from the Old Testament stories about his ministry. What did John do? He preached repentance of sin, pointing others to the Savior, but he also knew he needed the Savior. He's quoted as saying in Matthew 3, verse 11, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I'm not fit to carry, and in some translations say, whose sandals I'm not fit to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Luke tells us in Luke chapter 3, verse 3, that John went all into the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And Luke explains this important role that John is playing. And Luke quotes Isaiah, that Old Testament prophet, 700 years earlier. And in Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 through 5, listen to this. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all mankind will see God's salvation." I love the significance of this Isaiah passage because during this time, if someone knew a king was coming, they would prepare the roads. Quote, prepare the way, make straight the paths. Do you see what they're alluding to? John is telling his listeners, get your lives ready. Jesus is coming. John's not a crowd pleaser. He will confront the hypocrisy of the religious establishment and will learn next week he does not hesitate to expose the immorality of Herod Antipas. Luke tells us in Luke chapter 3, starting at verse 7. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What should we do then? The crowd asked. John answered, Anyone who has two shirts." should share with the one who has none, and anyone who has food should do the same. Even tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you're required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? He replied, don't extort money, don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. You brood of vipers. Jeff and I quote this a lot. It's actually an awesome phrase. You should try it sometime. John was remarking, That he saw right through some of those hypocrites who were coming to be baptized because some wanted to be baptized so they could avoid eternal punishment, but they didn't want to change their ways and turn to God for salvation. Here's a Bible truth God values reformation over ritual. And I'm going to say that again God values reformation over ritual baptism is not a vaccination show you believe by living a transformed life John was also letting them know that being a descendant of Abraham was not a get out of hell free card that was shocking to some it seems that many of the religious leaders at the time relied more on their family tree than on their faith religion is not an assumed inheritance. It's a personal relationship. Everyone has to individually put their faith in Christ. Confession of sin and a changed life, they're inseparable. Even as the brother of Jesus says in the book of James, he says, faith without deeds is dead. John the Baptist's message to the people, it was simple, but perhaps not simple to do. Share what you have with those who need it. Whatever your job is, do it well and be honest. Be content with your wage. What's interesting about John is that he does not mince words. He doesn't coddle. He told it like it is. Basically, shape up or ship out. We just read that John's message resonated with the poor, the dishonest, even the hated Roman soldiers, did you catch that? Isn't it interesting how these people were very aware of their shortcomings? Here's a question. What's more important? Your character or your reputation? These people, uh, the dishonest, the soldiers, had perhaps negative reputations, but they were seeking God's forgiveness to strengthen their character and to turn to right living. As we discussed during the last podcast, no one has heard from a prophet in 400 years. Can you imagine the powerful impact that John's words would be making? John's message, yes, it would have been threatening to the religious elite, but it would have been received by many others with excitement because they knew from the Old Testament prophecies that the Messiah's coming would be preceded by a great prophet like Elijah. Luke says that John came, quote, in the spirit and power of Elijah. And then Luke goes on to bring us back to Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, which states behold i will send you elijah the prophet before that great and awesome day of the lord comes remember these are the last words of the old testament so as people are listening to john the baptist they're starting to ask hey is is he elijah now john flatly denied that he was elijah reincarnated but When speaking to his followers, Jesus affirmed that Elijah must come and that he, in fact, had come in the person of John the Baptist. Oh, yeah, that's not confusing. (laughs) This is Matthew chapter 17, starting at verse 11. Jesus says, Elijah does come and he will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Jesus is saying John the Baptist fulfilled Malachi's prophecy in a spiritual sense rather than a literal sense. Bible writers all agree that John the Baptist fully accepted his subordinate role to Christ and he repeatedly emphasized that he's simply a witness to the light. John states Jesus was greater than he and that Jesus was going to have a more powerful ministry and baptism. All four Gospel writers tell us about Jesus' baptism. I'm going to focus on Matthew. Can you imagine the scene? Now, my husband and I both had the privilege of being baptized in the Jordan River, along with one of his sisters and his brother in law. The Jordan River starts at Mount Hermon and it flows through Israel, ending at the Dead Sea. We don't know where along this river that John typically would baptize people, and we don't know exactly where along the river he baptized Jesus. But I have to tell you that being in those waters and being submerged with some of my family is a very powerful experience. It's important for us to understand that for the Jews, the Jordan River had very special significance because it was the Jordan River that they crossed at the end of their Exodus journey. So they've been wandering in the desert 40 years, and then it's Joshua who crosses with them the Jordan River before they enter the Promised Land. In fact, the Jordan River was so significant to the Jews that during this time period, some Jewish leaders would actually bring people to the water to kind of symbolically reenact that, Jordan crossing as a way to emphasize their desire to be freed from the Romans and to enter that promised land of not being oppressed. So you can understand why the Jordan River was the place for baptism because the river for the Jews really was symbolic of their protection and their emancipation by God. It would symbolize to the Jews sort of their final step in their salvation history. When you study the Bible, it's so important to take a look at not only the literal, but also the symbolic meaning of so many events. Now picture John the Baptist at the river. He's probably way steep in water and maybe has been baptizing all day, dunking people and telling them to repent. And perhaps there's a long line of people waiting their turn and and along comes Jesus. Now, John knows Jesus, and he's been talking about Jesus, but there he is in the flesh. Chances are people are watching. This is a huge test of John's integrity. Remember, he has become immensely popular at this time. Would he now be thinking, turn it, my fun is over. Here comes the big guy. I need to step aside. You know, all four gospel writers acknowledge, no, it's humility that John exhibits while baptizing Jesus. In fact, the gospel writer John, in chapter 1, starting at verse 29, says, The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him, and I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me. The man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. Matthew's Gospel tells us John didn't even want to baptize Jesus, but rather he desired to be baptized by Jesus. We also learn that John allows his disciples to leave his own leadership and follow Jesus. And there's a story in the Gospel of John that says that a few days after Jesus' baptism, an argument breaks out between some of John's disciples because they see many people begin to follow Jesus. And I can kind of picture this, you know, out of loyalty for their leader, jealousy sets in and they are not happy when they notice that people who were following John are all of a sudden starting to follow Jesus, and Jesus is even baptizing people. But John does not give in to that need for success in the world's eyes. He knew this was not a popularity contest, and John tells us how John the Baptist replies to his followers who are kind of expressing this jealousy over Jesus's growing ministry. And you can find this in John chapter 3, starting at verse 27. To this, John the Baptist replied, A person can receive only what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine, and it is now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. What a beautiful phrase. It shows that John really understood his role. So you might think that this is the end of the story, that in essence, John would be exit, stage right. Seen fade to black. No, John continues his ministry. He continues to baptize even after he baptized Jesus. Why? What more was there for him to do? Well, God had given him a job to do, and that job was to point others to Christ. John intended to keep doing this until God had other plans for him. That joy is mine, John the Baptist is quoted as saying. John was aware he was part of a plan bigger than himself, and he's experiencing true joy by pointing others to Christ. Did you know that we are part of a plan bigger than ourselves? I know. The world provides great temptation to make everything about us. What's in it for me? Why should I care? How does it affect me? What am I missing out on if I do it? Does it oppress me in some way? Is it beneath me? Will it bring me recognition? How much does it pay? And my personal favorite, will it hurt? Lord, help us to decrease so that you can increase in each one of us. He must become greater. We must become less. Amen.